Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. So friends, in Psalm chapter 80, I want you to hold your place there. We're going to begin there in a moment. But I got to say, man, I love Christmas. I love the Advent season. So let the party invitations commence. Right, Deck the halls with whatever bowels of holly you may have in your home. But I will tell you, in a season in which it's time for parties and gatherings and fellowships, no Christmas party is complete without the white elephant gift exchange. (laughs) Come on. Now, you either love it or you hate it, but love it or hate it, like it or lump it, you have to admit it can get a little crazy. And it's always interesting that the original expression of the white elephant came from actual lore that that the king of Siam would actually give real white elephants to people who had annoyed him. He would bequeath them these white real elephants, these animals, those who had annoyed him so that they would be burdened now with the ongoing care of the animal. And in some ways, that's kind of how the game works, isn't it? except with a little bit of a lighter fare to it. You show up at a party and you bring a gift. It's wrapped up and you put it in a pile of gifts. And the rules vary from place to place, but the way I like to play it is you number off and each person in sequence and number will go one person at a time and grab a gift. And the way we play it, you unwrap the gift so that all can see. Then the person who holds Position number two now has a choice. They can choose to steal that gift from you or they can open an unopened gift and the game continues. By the time you reach the end of the group, there is trading and swapping and stealing. It's cutthroat. It's pretty crazy. Earlier this week, I put a post on Facebook and I asked, what is the craziest white elephant gift you've ever received? And I got some interesting responses You know, sometimes you go to a white elephant gift exchange and and you end up with some good gifts. I mean, if you show up with a a 50-count box of Starbucks Christmas blend K-cups, that's a pretty good gift. If you end up with a pair of fuzzy socks to get you through the winter, that's a good gift. A scented candle goes a long way as well. But man, I wish you could see some of the responses I got. Some of them were direct messaged to me because they're not for public announcement. It's funny how at the White Elephant Gift Exchange, there's always kind of a theme around a commode. Like the, the, the toilet seat that plays jingle bells when it's activated. Or, or the toilet seat frame to picture your, your family in. One person told me that she got a plunger and some toilet paper It gets a little crazy. One person, if she's here, is Michaela here? Michaela Michaela got a a literal lump of coal one year. Yeah. Now, my son, Jackson, who's here with us uh, from from college for a little bit, he plays this game pretty well. A couple years ago, he actually took a literal bale of hay to a party. 
And then at a Christmas party among our youth showed up with live goldfish, right? Now, the point is clear. The goal of, of the, the white elephant gift exchange is clear. You hope to let go of the thing that is unwanted and you hope to pick up the thing that's much wanted. If I said it another way, a different way, I would say at a white elephant gift exchange, you bring what you have with hopes of leaving with something better. And at the birth of Christ, you and I are invited to the gift exchange of the ages because you and I are invited to choose the gift of God's hope and peace and love and joy. But, but in order for you or for me to truly experience those things, the true hope, peace, love, and joy of Christ, it means that somewhere along the way, we have to learn to let go of some things that are in our hands. It means that we have to come to the, the great party with, with a, a kind of courageous openness of relinquishing the thing that we carry. And during this series, all month long, throughout the season of Advent, I wanna make the case to you that you can bring to God some things that you didn't think God wanted. And in exchange, I promise you can go home with something as Little Owen says, is way better. Yeah. So today is Hope Sunday. And hope essentially is simply longing for something to be better. Longing for something to change. Longing for something that is wrong to be righted, something broken to be mended, something lost to be regained. To hope means to long for something to change, but I want to make the pitch to you today that you can't experience true hope until you name the thing that is broken. Name the thing that is wrong that you are hoping will change. And we hope for so many different things. We hope for big things and small things, sacred things and profane things. We hope, I hope that he returns my text because this could be a thing. I, I hope that she forgives me because if she would just give me one more chance, I, I won't blow it this time. I hope, I hope that this opportunity that's opened up is actually a real opportunity because I cannot stand another day in this office. I hope. We've been through two rounds of treatment and I hope the test comes back with good news. I hope clouds will part and sun will shine again because I can't feel this way another day. So we hope. But in order for us to truly find the kind of hope that is offered through Jesus Christ, it means that we have to find a way to give voice to, to speak into the universe, to point, to identify, to call out the thing that is broken to name the hurt, the injury, the pain, to identify 
the place where the trauma changed everything. We need to be able to point to the place where it feels as if we are carrying a seemingly irreversible injustice that the universe itself has cast against us, right? In the Bible, there is a word to describe what I'm talking about, about voicing this kind of pain, identifying it, calling it out. The word is lament to lament. I know we have children in both rooms today worshiping, and I, want, I know you're writing down some notes, kids, so I want on your children's worship guide to, you write, to write down this definition for you. The lament, lament is grieving what has gone wrong in the world and calling on God to repair it. Not a bad thing for us grown-ups to remember as well. Now, there are many fancy definitions for lament, but when it all boils down to it, to the very simplest expression, lament is grieving the things that have gone wrong in the world and then calling on God to repair it. And I don't just mean feeling bad about it. To lament means to call it out, to rage, to voice it, to name it, and then call on God to do what only God is qualified to do, to fix it. Yeah. When was the last time that you lamented before God? Sometimes we can get ourselves into a, into a corner because we assume that because sometimes God doesn't answer the prayers that we ask that maybe we should stop praying them but I want to make the case today that that is, that is not what we do, that we rage, that we make noise, that we rattle the cages because God is listening. Trouble is, you and I don't have a very good relationship with lament. We've got a strange relationship with it. In fact, we are mostly strangers to lament, and I think it's killing us. You and I are mostly strangers to the art, the practice, the ritual, the custom of truly lamenting. And I think because we are strangers to that process and we hide, we tuck it away, we just kind of suck it up. Because we do, I believe it is killing us. And here's, here's part of the reason why. You and I think of lament as just complaining, griping. And we think of complaining and griping as, well, like whining, and whining is weak, and we don't want to be weak, so we just kind of suck it up, right? We just tuck it away. We do what the great theologian Marge Simpson told her daughter. They're driving to school one day, and she said, now, Lisa, I want you to smile today. She said, I don't feel like smiling, Mom. She said, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you feel inside. You know, it, it's what shows up on the outside that counts. Take all your bad feelings and push them down all the way down to your knees until you're almost walking on them. And then you'll fit in and you'll be invited to parties and boys will like you and happiness, it'll follow. Isn't that awful? And... That's exactly what you and I do. We, we just do. We just cram it down somewhere because here's the truth. All of the pain, 
all of your injury, all of your, your anger at the way things are, your frustration, the bitterness that grows, it doesn't just disappear. It doesn't just go away. It goes somewhere. Yeah. In places the outside world can't see, but slowly kills you from inside. So we have some dear friends, friends in this church who have family who about a month and a half ago or so lost everything they had in a house fire. It was completely gut-wrenching, devastating, burned completely to the ground. I was telling this story to a, a colleague of mine on staff as a matter of prayer. Let's be in prayer for this family because they lost everything. And then she told me a story about about a friend she has who lost everything in a fire as well. Fire broke out in a part of her home, but it was just a small contained fire in a bedroom someplace. She called the fire department. Fire department came and put out the fire. Everything was well. Fire department went home. Because the fire was contained in one part of the house, she, she went to bed, went to sleep that night. What she didn't know, and the fire department didn't know, was that the fire was in the walls of the house. And later that night, burned completely to the ground. She got out safely, but she lost everything because the fire was in the walls. I look around me today and I see in the culture in which we live, in the world in which we are living, people walking around with fire in the walls. We've been through a thing, you and me, these last 20 months, and we know we have, but we pretend like we haven't. We have lost some things. Some have lost businesses, income. Some have lost relationships over the strife that it kind of emerged within the pandemic because you know there were more than just one pandemic. There was the coronavirus pandemic, but there were multiple pandemics. There was the pandemic of racial tension and the pandemic of political division and the pandemic of disengagement from one another, polarization, and all of that pain, and all of that injury, and all of that, that anger, where did it go? Did we deal with it? Did we grieve it? Did we acknowledge it? Did we bring it before God to transform it? Or is it still fire in the walls of us? Because I look around and I see people like powder kegs about to just explode. I'm pulling out of Kroger the other day. And I don't go fast enough out of the, onto the 141. And this guy lays on his horn behind me. And then I love what happens in these kind of moments. Because then we pull up to the same traffic light. It's red. He pulls up there really fast. Then I just kind of obnoxiously, slowly creep up next to him. I roll my window down. Oh, yeah, I don't, yeah, yes, I'm going to roll my window down. <laughs> and I said, I said, dude, where was I supposed to go? What, what, what did you want from me? And then he told me that I was his number one person <laughs> in that moment. <laughs> we just, we have fire in the walls and we don't think we do because we're just fine. Just pack it down, push it way down, past your knees till you're almost walking on it. And then eventually something pop. And we just... Just rage at one another because the truth has been spoken 
Pain that is not transformed is transmitted. Pain that is not transformed is transmitted and usually is transmitted upon the ones who are closest to us. Our spouses, our children, our parents, our neighbors, our co-workers, and we just lash out at them because we don't know what to do with our pain. The ancients, our sisters and brothers, our forebears in the faith, had a better way. It was the way of lament. This Bible is crammed with examples of individual and corporate pain and suffering and heartache and, and, and all of the, the poets and the prophets call the people, they give voice to the people to be able to articulate what has gone wrong in God's good and ordered world through the art of lament, to name the pain, call it out so that it's as if the scriptures give us permission with a big ax to dig through the wall of us until the fire comes out because you can't do anything with it until the fire comes out. So, Two of the dominant questions that are throughout, weave throughout uh, scriptures of lamentation, scriptures in which there are prayers and songs of lamenting. Two dominant questions are why and how long, O Lord? And if I just said nothing else about those two phrases, would that not speak how sometimes it feels with the fire that's in your walls? Why? I did everything that you told me to do. I did everything by the book. I did everything right. And still the thing happened and it, and it fell apart. Why? And, and sometimes we who think we are more spiritually sophisticated than we really are, we say, well, it doesn't really help to ask why because there is no answer to why. Yeah, I know that. But it doesn't hurt to ask the question. Because in the questioning of why, you are now in a dialogue with the only one who has an answer to it. And I would rather be in dialogue with someone who has no answers to give me than to be in silence. So all throughout the scriptures, why? Why, God? Why? And also, how long, O Lord? How long will you hide your face from me? How long until you show up? How long till you fix it? And the Biblical writers make no apology about how unsophisticated or unspiritual it may sound. It's in there. Can I give you one or two examples? In the Psalms, we read in Psalm 130, verse 1, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Psalm 6, verse 3, my soul is in deep anguish. How long? There it is. How long, Lord? How long? Psalm 38, 9 through 11, all my longings lie open before you, Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart, listen to this language, my heart pounds. My strength fails me. Even the light has gone from my eyes. My friends and companions avoid me because of my woes. My neighbors stay far away. Psalm 10, verse one, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And Psalm 42, verse seven, deep, calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. I listened to one of my favorite Hebrew Bible scholars, Walter Brueggemann, who says that more than one 
third, more than a third of the book of Psalms are Psalms of lament, of anguish, of raging, of rattling the cage, of making some noise before God, including that very poignant Psalm 137 where they have lost their song. They have lost their song. There by the rivers of Babylon, we hung up our harps because our tormentors asked us for mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion, but how can you sing the Lord's song in a strange and foreign land? Psalm goes on to say, I try to play, but my fingers have withered. I try to sing, but the tongue clings to my mouth. How many of you know what it actually feels like? The fire in the walls for you is that you have lost your song. You've got nothing to sing about, nothing to play about. There it is right there in sacred scripture, giving you permission to say it. And maybe the most profound of all, our Savior, dying on the cross, suffering on behalf of all humankind, whispered the psalm of lament, Psalm 22, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if Jesus, the Son of the Most High, can pray a prayer of lament of all the things that he could choose to pray on the cross, a prayer of lament, then that gives you and me permission to be just as human. The prophets called the people in exile to lament. And let's not forget, of all the books of the Bible that we have, the only one that is named after a human emotion is not the book of happiness. It's not first and second satisfactions. Come on. It's the book of lamentation. That's right. So Kathleen O'Connor writes about the experience or the art, the practice of lament and the strength of it. This is what she says. Lamentation names what is wrong, what is out of order in God's world, what keeps human beings from thriving in all their creative potential. Simple acts of lament expose these conditions, name them, open them to grief and anger and make them visible, watch, for remedy. In its its complaint and anger and grief, lamentation protests conditions that prevent human thriving. And this resistance may finally prepare the way for healing. You can't have hope until you know what you're hoping yourself out of. You can't have the experience of true Christly hope without first acknowledging the thing that is broken and naming it. And lament is a pathway to the hope of Christ, a pathway to the hope that you and I long for so deeply. Now, some of what I'm saying is familiar because you've walked the path of lament. I want to give an example in scripture about what it feels like. And in Psalm 80, I wanna just walk through a few of these verses and just exposit a few truths that emerge and hope that they meet you right where you are in order to equip you on your pursuit of the hope of Christ. Let's begin reading. In Psalm 80, verse 1, 
Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. And then this refrain that repeats again and again throughout the rest of this psalm, restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. Lament has the audacity to call God out. This is your job. You are the shepherd. We are the sheep. We can't guide ourselves out. Come and be shepherd, shepherd. Now, to you and me, that feels irreverent. It feels sacrilegious. It feels like you don't talk to the Lord that way, but the scriptures have no qualms whatsoever because here's why. When you lament and you call upon God to remedy the thing that is broken, what you're doing is demonstrating your confidence in the fact that God can. What you're doing is that something has gone wrong in this world and you have ordered this world in such a way that is meant to be beautiful, it's meant to be just, it's meant to be fair, it's meant to be good, and yet something is broken in it. So you are the one who made this thing, you fix it. And in so doing, what sounds to be audacious is actually an expression of our confidence in the capacity of God's character to actually deliver when it's time. See, sometimes we think that lament is a, like a lack of faith, but lament is not a lack of faith. Lament, true lament is an act of faith because you're demonstrating confidence in the one to whom you are crying out. Plus, you know God can take it, right? You know God can take it. Best example in the book of Job, I'll refer you to the series that we did last year where we walked through the entire book of Job and this man lost everything. And we sometimes irresponsibly refer to Job as the patience of Job. Oh, patient Job. Because in the New Testament, it refers to the patience of Job. But Job is only patient for the first two chapters. And then he's patient again from like chapter, you know, 39 to 42. He bookends this great story, the oldest story we have, by the way, because it's the most experienced story, human suffering. He bookends this story with patience. But in the middle is 36 chapters of ranting and raging and shaking his fist at God about the way things are. He would subpoena God and bring him down if you would just come to court with me. And we had a set of scales and I put my suffering on one side and you put your acts of justice in the other. Well, my suffering would outweigh your justice and you've got some splaining to do. And so he would call God out 36 chapters worth of ranting and three of his friends, four really, but three, through most of that time say, Job, you can't, hush, shh. You can't, you can't talk to the almighty like that. Surely you've done something wrong. And yet he hadn't. And at the end, of course, you know how this plays out. At the end of the story, he confronts and is confronted by God and they have this moment and it reframes his perspective. He goes on this worldwide tour of the universe and sees things like he hadn't seen it before. And so he, he has a new perspective. But at the very end in chapter 42, something fascinating happens. God turns to the friends of Job who said, you shouldn't talk to God that way. Surely you've done something wrong. Shh, don't, don't approach God in that kind of forthright manner. He turns to the friends of Job 
And the text says that his anger is kindled. In Hebrew, the word off means the nostrils, the, the nostrils of the nose. God's nostrils flared at these friends and said, you have not spoken of me what is right like my servant Job has, like this one who came and showed his face to me, who came and called me out, who came and insisted that we are in dialogue with one another. To be truly human means to be truly present and bring all of your pain and questioning and anguish before God. When we lament, it strengthens the relationship between you and the one to whom you are lamenting. Regardless the outcome, the relationship this is strengthened. So let's continue. So in verse four, O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your prayer, your people's prayers? You have, now watch this language, you have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You have you make us the scorn of our neighbors. Our enemies laugh among themselves. And then the final refrain again, restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Do you hear that language of tears? Lament has the courage to name tears. You and I don't have the courage to name tears. And that's mostly because you and I live in a culture in which we are mostly in denial of our mortality and our vulnerability. We are in denial of both our mortality and our vulnerability. You can tell by the way we talk about death. We don't talk about death like it's death. We, we use softer language like so-and-so passed away. So-and-so went on to be with the Lord. It doesn't change the fact that so-and-so has died, was living and is now not living, dead. In places like Ethiopia, there are villages where mothers won't name their children until they're two years old because of the infant mortality rates. Yeah, because death is a part of life. And yet you and I become so uncomfortable with our mortality, with death. I mean, we even, our, our culture is the first culture in the history of our species that can have a funeral with no dead body in the room. Think about that. And it's found in the way we talk as well. We don't like to acknowledge our tears. If we, if we cry, we apologize. I can't tell you how many people in my ministry I've been with over the years who when you get to a vulnerable state, they begin to get tender and weepy and they begin to cry. And in so doing, have you heard someone say to you, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm just, I apologize. I didn't mean to, I'm sorry. As if tears are something for which to apologize I mean, if you want to test what I'm saying, next time you're in your group, your Sunday school group or small group, and you're asking for prayer requests, instead of asking simply for your uncle who has a head cold, open up something that you're really struggling with. Tell somebody that you're just not sure how long you can hang on. Tell somebody that, that you're not sure she's going to stick around. Tell somebody that you're worried about your kid because he's going through a thing. And watch how quickly good-hearted people who love you will attempt to make you feel better about it instead of creating the space for tears to be safe. Because pain that's not transformed is transmitted and it can't be transformed until you see the tear and name the tear and know where it's from and where it's going. A dear friend of mine, Dan Bagby, uh, he was a 
professor of mine in seminary and, and then a good friend and mentor. And his father died and, and he was at the funeral in Brazil. He was a missionary kid in Brazil. And he's at the funeral, and he's at the back of the room and he's crying. He's just standing there crying and this little girl is watching him and he sees this little girl about three years old. He's, she's in the family. She sees him crying and he knows that she may be uncomfortable. So he picks her up and just holds her and begins to explain to her. She hadn't said anything, but begins to explain to her, like, I'm just sad. I'm thinking good thoughts about this person. I just miss them and I'm really sad today because, and she takes her one hand and she puts it up on his lips. And without saying a word, this little three-year-old takes her other hand and takes the tear off of his eyes and just kind of looks at it and without saying a word, reminds him what he's reminding, what was reminding me now that sometimes all we need is for God to make space for our tears. And sometimes when you and I are with one another and have the courage to lament the thing that is broken, if we could just find the courage to make space for our tears, those tears can be transformed. Now the hour is upon us, but can we do one more? This means yes, this means no. <laughs> yes, come on, preach, John. Verse eight, oh, this is good going to be worth the stay. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You, Lord. You drove out the nations and planted it. You, you cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were, were covered with its shade, the, the mighty cedars with its branches. It, it sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass along this way pluck from its fruit, the boar from the forest ravages it, and, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, this stock that your right hand planned or planted. They have burned it with fire. See, somebody took an ax to the walls of their house and the fire is no longer in the walls, see. The, they have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your countenance, but let your hand be upon the one at your right hand, the one whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will never turn back from you. Give us life and we will call on your name. Then the refrain, restore us. O oh Lord, God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. It's a beautiful image because it's a reminder that sometimes what we lament is what we've done wrong. They're lamenting in exile because they had broken covenant. And yet look at how they did it. In a gorgeous way, they paint this image of a vine where God comes and pulls out of Egyptian slavery this vine of the people of Israel. And then he takes this precious vine, newly freed slaves, and he goes to the promised land and he clears the rocks and debris, the nations who were there, and plants with his own hand this vine. And now they have been destroyed. Their walls are gone and they're lamenting. But listen to how they're doing it. They're lamenting their sin and lamenting their brokenness but when you lament like this, here's what you do. 
When you lament, you are declaring to the world and you're maybe even reminding yourself that you're part of a redemption story and a redeemable story that is rooted in the hope of God. That I may rend my garments and throw ash into the air. I may, may lament that everything has gone wrong, but everything has gone wrong as a part of a story that has a beginning and a future. We are that vine and it's been plucked up. And now if you would plant us again and redeem us, and that should mean something to you and me as we enter into the season of Advent because we celebrate the birth of this baby. And this baby grows up to be a man who says, as he's walking next to a vineyard one day, you know what, I am the true vine. And you who abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing because we believe that this vine, the vine, the true vine, the Christ of God was plucked from the ground, planted back in the earth, and on the third day rose to new fruitfulness. And you and I are the first fruits of that new vine. So when you have something lament worthy, say it, because you know that you are being planted in the midst of your turmoil to be resurrected with the first fruits of all creation. You are not alone. You're not the only one making noise in the heart. So take the acts of faith, open up the walls and let God hear it. And you will learn then in that moment that you have joined all of creation. In Romans 8, we hear these words. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly, we lament inwardly, the fire is in the walls while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies for in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes in what is seen. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very spirit, intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You have a spirit who is currently on your behalf lamenting, hoping that you would add your voice to the voice of the spirit so that in the full redemption of all creation, you will be able to sing with the saints of the old, of the aged, of the ages that one day you were a part of this vine that was plucked, but by God's grace through Christ have been planted and resurrected 